I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detloff, your temperature-taking doorman. <laughs> um, Make sure to say hi to me on your way out. <laughs> and I am Matt Bernico, your from-a-distance self-isolating social influencer. <laughs> self-isolating socialism that's what this podcast is about <laughs> that's right um we, we want to do socialism but just six feet apart <laughs> that's right uh we need a lot of space for these rallies um i i have to say i feel like this is going to be an angry one uh matt and i've been talking for a while before this i mean we always talk before we do an episode but we've been talking i think <laughs> longer than normal mostly just in an upset kind of way just a a negative affect in the air um i don't know what to do with it but i guess we'll find a place to put it that's right this is going to be the memphis laid to waste of podcasts <laughs> it's a deep cut for all you norma jean fans out there i know there's a, most of our the uh the venn diagram of norma jean fans and magnificast listeners is a perfect circle yeah that's right um also a great reference because i bought me without you tickets that i'm probably gonna have to return oh, um, so again another deep cut yeah i know what a huge bummer. When when are they coming um, to Toronto? Like, do you have time? I I think it's in like April or May. So oh, I can't boy. imagine that the lid is going to be put back on this by then. Yeah. But well, we all have to will ourselves to get better so you can go see me without you. That is very important. That's right. Yeah, please, everyone use your collective energy <laughs> to clear, to purge this virus. <laughs> Dang. Well, there's like I like a this is the the televangelist sort of energy that we can bring on this podcast. Uh, if everybody will just if you could just close your eyes for one moment, uh, stretch out your hand. Um, not if you're driving, probably you're not though. Stretch out your hand with your eyes closed and uh, just say a quick prayer and banish that virus. Send it straight to heck, <laughs> all the way downtown to heck. Well, uh, there's basically no way around. Talking about politics this week without talking about COVID-19 and all of the pandemic stuff and lockdown stuff going on. Um, it sucks, but that's what we got to do. Um, you know, it, it's times like these that offer us a, a moment of reflection uh, to think about how just 
bad things are. <laughs> um, so that's what we're going to do today is talk about COVID-19 and the pandemic and all the politics that kind of surround it. But before we do that, Dean, I got to ask you a big question that is completely unrelated to viruses. Great. Well, that's what I need right now. We are going to talk about how bad things are, but I need to know, can you just lift me up? Yeah. Can you lift me up with one? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, right now we're at both at about a 10 and this one's going to bring it down a little bit. So it's great. Um, good. Good. Yeah. Okay. So this is from um, my favorite website, reddit.com slash r slash Christianity. Uh, and here's a big question. Is it okay to read the Bible in bed slash laying down? Um, and then uh, <laughs> the, the title continues with asterisks. Uh, help with appropriate conduct. Uh, it goes on to say, newbie Christian question here. Does God require a specific posture to show him reverence whilst we read his words? <laughs> whilst mm -hmm. is doing a lot there. I can be lazy <laughs> and read the Bible, but I can make myself read a bit more if I'm cozy in bed. Is it rude to talk to God whilst I smoke? This guy is not going to stop using the word whilst and it's driving me crazy. Um, sorry. So anyways, is it rude to talk to God whilst I smoke? I'm in my best mood mentally when I am. Wait, wait, wait. It was first. It was just getting cozy, but now it's whilst I smoke. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Because, because this this user is in their best mood mentally whilst they are smoking. I uh -huh. don't mm. blame them. Um, okay, uh, then it continues. I am too lazy to pray on my knees, but I make myself do it because I say more when I pray on my knees. And I imagine that it is more respectful than sitting down and praying if I'm able to. Thank you, guys. Newbie, newbie, witch to Christian, trying to understand. That's right. Witch to Christian is the sort of transition we're going to here. And I do need to say this is posted two hours ago. So, Dean, if you get this person some uh, some advice quickly, that would be great. Promptly. Yeah. Well, first of all, Witch to Christian is uh, the name of my new uh, indie <laughs> indie band. And I, I just love that. And I want to say thanks to this poster for giving me that. I got to say, uh, Witch to Christian I think that's the wrong name. direction. I think you should be, I, th I think Christian to Witch to Christian Witch is no, probably better. No, of course, but but it doesn't sound as good. Christian yeah. to witch, witch to Christian. Yeah, no, I get it. It's a better band name for sure. <laughs> That's what I'm here for. That's what I'm in it for. Um, <laughs> it's a tough one. Uh, you know, I'm sympathetic to the plight here because I, too, am far too lazy to get on my knees to pray. Mm -hmm. um, when I pray, I'm usually multitasking. I'm doing the dishes. I'm walking around. I'm cleaning the cat box. I, you know, it's it's those kind of things you don't want to be doing that I'm like, what else don't I want? All oh, right, praying. I better mm. do that. I better get one of those <laughs> in here real quick. Um, so I, I can sympathize. Uh, I do like, though, the idea of intentionally getting yourself snuggled right up, lighting one of those uh, big hot pieces of paper, putting that in your mouth and thinking, now I'm ready. This is the Bible posture. <laughs> I mean, it depends on what you're smoking, I suppose, right? You could have a big uh, a big uh, marijuana cigarette and uh, and that's when you do all your God talk. And mm -hmm. fine, I guess. But, yeah. Is it rude, though, is the question, though, Dean? I mean, like, I think that to me, that makes a lot of sense, right? Like, you, you're having a cigarette, you're smoking a cigar. I don't know. And you're talking to God. Fine. But is it rude to God to smoke while you do it? I'm sorry. Is it rude yeah. to talk to God whilst you do it? Right, right, right. No, you're right, right. Very important. Um, yeah, I mean, surely it can't be right, because there's so much smoke 
you know, in those big traditional churches every Sunday. Oh, that's They're true. They're those places right up. It really, this is this is your own personal sensor lighting one up. That's true. And you gotta uh, just wave it around in front of you, and you're doing yeah. the liturgy right there. Yeah, and you say the magic words, which to Christian, and you're gold. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's good. Okay, so, but uh, that's good. That makes a lot of sense to me. You're smoking, it's fine. What about if you're uh, cozy in bed? Is that rude? Yeah, you gotta be. So here's actually something very funny. A, a good friend of mine who's also Catholic tells me that um, his grandmother used to say uh, the pews are intentionally uncomfortable to make sure that you're always focused on God. And yeah, sure. I love that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, you know, you you can't get too cozy because you're just gonna get sucked back into the the dream of worldly things. Uh, you got you have to listen. You can get snuggled up. You can get your favorite blanket. You can do all of that, but you have to get like your second favorite soda. Now, that makes sense. So you just a little bit put out. Now, mm-hmm. here's something that I'm going to regret saying later, maybe. Um, do you know who Mark Lowry is? That sounds familiar to me, but for some reason, I can't place it. OK, well, I'm going to tell you right now. Uh, Mark Lowry is I is I'm not sure what his current. Is he a comedian? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's a yeah, Christian okay. comedian and also right. the author of the song. Mary, did you know? Right, 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 right. So when I was growing up, uh, we had a Mark Lowry VHS tape. (laughs) (laughs) Great. And one of the jokes that I remember from the tape is Mark Lowry saying that he called his bed. He named his bed the word so that when people called him (laughs) early in the morning, he could answer his uh, phone and say, sorry, I can't talk right now. I'm in the word. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's a pretty good idea, I think. Very good. It's really good. That is really good. And I'm impressed. I wish I would have thought of that joke myself. It's actually funny, uh, which is uh, it, remarkable yeah. in light of the rest of his over. Didn't Mike Lowry have like a like a Christian Comedy Central kind of thing called Bananas? I thought it was Mike Lowry, but it could be someone else. There was something called Bananas where it was a bunch of Christian comedians. And it was like, you know, Ron Robin style, like 15 minutes. You do oh. all your bits and you go off stage. And there was one person that hosted it. It might not have been Mike Lowry, but it was someone in that circuit. You know, I wouldn't uh, Christian comedians. I wouldn't put it past them to do that, to copy yeah. off of the secular comedians. Yeah, I I remember um, watching them and uh, some of them are, you know, you get a few good jokes in there or whatever, but (laughs) every once in a while you get one who comes up and they tell some good jokes. It's like the Christian Tim Allen or whatever. And he's up there telling you about, you know, the difference between men and women and how he's so stupid and his wife's so smart. And uh, eventually he's like, "Okay, I got to bring it down a minute. Here's a quick story about how I used to be an alcoholic. (laughs) And also (laughs) now I came to Jesus Christ. And it's like, buddy, (laughs) there's a time and a place. We're up bananas right now. (laughs) Yeah, it sucks that Christian comedians are always sort of like uh, committed to give their testimony. I think that sucks. If they could just be (laughs) funny, it'd be great. But they can't. It's just impossible. Yeah, I would. Is there a Christian Borat out there? (laughs) <laughs> Christian Borat there's got to be um, there has to be one Christian Borat exactly one because the my wife line is too perfect yeah that's right Jesus saved my life <laughs> uh, I think we can at least give a, a magnificent guarantee that you will never hear a testimony on this podcast <laughs> Oh boy. Okay, so unless it's a unless it's like one time I was a a libertarian and you couldn't even believe it. I was down. I was at Wall Street. I was trading stocks, and uh, one day, like the Lord just put it on my heart. I couldn't believe it, and uh, He saved me, and now I'm a member of the Communist Party uh, USA. Amen. All right.
Well, uh, I don't know if we answered the question. Is it okay to read the Bible in bed? It's probably fine. Let's talk about something else. It's great. Whew. Okay. <laughs> great job. Yeah, we did. We did it. And now we're doing a different thing. It's cool. God is doing a new thing. That's a Newsboys song. Man, for some reason, <laughs> I said Mark Lowry and that has unlocked the key to my evangelical childhood. And I've got it all <laughs> coming out. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's that's the worst kind of coronavirus. <laughs> that's uh, right. The crown, the crown of thorns <laughs> virus. Um, all right, uh, that's the segue. Now we're talking about coronavirus. There we go. Um, <laughs> here we go. We're back on the rails. Uh, okay, so like Matt said, if we're going to talk about politics, we've got to talk about COVID-19. Um, listen, it sucks. It's really bad, and everything that's happening around it is bad, and we're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about some solidarity stuff and maybe about how to think more about it and we'll invite people to do that more with us so hopefully it doesn't it's not just so i don't know it's not just doom and gloom but there's going to be some of that fair warning um in the episode we want to do kind of a roundup and analysis of maybe some socialist stuff about COVID 19 and some christian stuff about it see what's what's going on and bring some clarity to it uh since neither of us are really science people uh we thought we'd turn to some writing that is sciencey um, so before we get to Christian stuff or whatever, we took a look at a book by Mike Davis, who's a legendary socialist historian. He's written lots and lots of very good books. And this one is called The Monster at Our Door, The Global Threat of Avian Flu. Um, it's a really fascinating book. As you can guess, it came out of the uh, avian flu epidemic or pandemic, I guess. And the book really helped us, I think, get our bearings a little when it comes to pandemics. So it's helpful for this moment because it doesn't just give you a scientific history of the bird flu, although it does. It'll tell you everything you ever wanted to know about how people get the flu. Uh, but it also has a neat political history running alongside of that. Um, and Mike Davis also wrote an essay where he sort of updates all of this. Uh, so we'll get to that in a moment. Um, I guess we should say uh, we'll lay out these big ideas and we'll get to the Christianity part. Part of the episode is going to be about seeing how the crisis is revealing a lot of things that the left is always going on about. Not so that we can say, I told you so, but hopefully so we can communicate this to other people and not accept the kind of half measures that are being proposed. The other part of the episode is to emphasize that isolation and a crisis like this one raise a lot of questions about solidarity and Christian love and that sort of thing. So we're going to get to that. Yeah. So first things first. What even is COVID-19? Boy, did I not know until I read some stuff about it. So scientists are still <laughs> trying to find out its exact origins. But the theory right now is that it originates in bats. So that's the, the animal you should hate, I guess. And uh, it can all be traced back to a meat market in Wuhan, China, where animals are kept close together and then slaughtered. Um, they don't sell bats at the market. So the assumption is that uh, that like an animal served as a, a middle host to the virus to jump to humans, um, which, man, I couldn't tell you how that works. It seems like magic to me. But in fact, it's science. So um, this is the same kind of situation they think, though, that brought about things like SARS virus in uh, 2002. So the coronavirus, uh, it's not bird flu like we had, uh, I guess, in the past, but it's instead a bat flu. Um, but it didn't get named that for whatever reason. Um, but anyways, what's interesting about Mike Davis's book is that the spread is working out pretty much exactly how he says, not because he's like a prophet, but because he's a socialist and he pays attention to materialism and history and all kinds of things like that. So uh, there you go. Um, so I'm going to read kind of a big quote uh, from Mike Davis that might give us a little bit of a, a good place to jump off. Is that a good place to start, Dean? Yeah, definitely. OK, here we go. The essence of the avian flu threat 
is that a mutant influenza of nightmarish virulence evolved and now entrenched in ecological niches recently created by global agrocapitalism. It's searching for the new gene or two that will enable it to travel at pandemic velocity through a densely urbanized and mostly poor humanity. This is a destiny, moreover, that we have largely forced upon influenza. Human-induced environmental shocks, overseas tourism, wetland destruction, a corporate livestock revolution, and third-world urbanization with the attendant growth of mega-slums are responsible for turning influenza's extraordinary Darwinian mutability into one of the most dangerous biological forces on our besieged planet. Likewise, our terrifying vulnerability to this and other emergent diseases has been shaped by concentrated urban poverty, the neglect of vaccine development by a pharmaceutical industry that finds infectious diseases unprofitable, and the deterioration and even collapse of public health infrastructure in some rich as well as poor countries. The evil of the avian flu, in other words, was not some ancient plague awakened from dormancy, if such can exist, independent of historical circumstances, but a new form in whose creation we have inadvertently but decisively intervened. Okay, so Mike Davis, uh, he's starting off strong here with this really, um, man, well-written and cool paragraph that just is explaining kind of like what is going on here. It's not some, you know, like ancient sickness or whatever that you know came from space or like an ice cap melting or whatever it's um it's a type of illness that uh is aided and um helped by um the structures of capitalism uh and it will affect yeah the the poor first and probably most hard and then everybody as well. But um, yeah, I think it's a really good explanation of kind of like what we're seeing and what we're going, what's going on here. Again, he's talking about avian flu, but it's really, you know, exactly what we're seeing when it comes to COVID-19. Yeah, I mean, they're effectively the same thing in this sense. Uh, the bat flu or COVID-19, um, it, you know, it's, it's a different animal, but like the, the story is exactly the same. So the, the big thing kind of thing that Davis wants to explain in this book is that, like he says, uh, the pandemic kind of quality of influenza is what he calls a a destiny that we've forced upon it uh, through political economy, through the way that we've built cities, the way that we have organized how we create food and, and produce food, all that kind of thing. And I think that is really the strength of the kind of socialist look here. Mm-hmm. It's to ask us questions about, well, okay, first of all, where does the flu come from, right? Scientifically, where do you find it? And then how does it spread? And when you ask questions like that, you inevitably end up in questions of political economy. You know, it, it spreads pretty quickly among communities that don't have access to healthcare, communities that are forced to be in close proximity because of, you know, maybe uh, poor housing or unavailable housing or uh, the the nature of how cities kind of build and things like mega slums, etc. And I think that's really key here is to recognize that um, the flu doesn't have to be this bad. Uh, We have made it the way that it is Mm -hmm. uh, by the way that we've chosen to organize the world. Yeah, I think it's a really good example of just how um, intertwined, I think, um, like humanity and our surroundings are. Um, it's a really good example of the ways that, I mean, capitalism is like uh, God's tentacles kind of in everything, but just, you know, just the way that like we actually influence our environments and then like those environments come back to bite us right in the butt. Um, 
I think that's an, an interesting way. Anyways, the materialist analysis of socialism, I think, is like really apt for these types of things, um, or at least Mike Davis makes it look that way. He's really good at it. <laughs> I don't think I could do as good, but uh, Mike Davis is better than me. Um, okay, so uh, towards the end of the uh, the Monsters at the Door book, um, basically he he's he's talking about uh, bird flu, and he's like, you know, it could be bird flu that ends up like taking a ton ton of lives and and being this huge problem for us, or it could be something else. You know, it could mutate, it could be something different, and um, and uh, that's how the book ends, basically, in a really sort of bleak way. <laughs> um, the uh, Though he, he gave an update uh, to the book based on the recent uh, stuff around the coronavirus pandemic. And I think uh, it's really interesting because it, it basically his updated essay just kind of picks up where the book, you know, leaves off. And he kind of, uh, you know, uh, shakes around some words and uh, explains uh basically things in the, in the exact same way. So I'm going to read a little bit here from uh, Mike Davis's uh, updated COVID-19 essay um, based on the monster is at our door. Uh, so he says, COVID-19 is finally the monster at our door. Researchers are working night and day to characterize the outbreak, but they are faced with three huge challenges. First, the continuing shortage or unavailability of test kits has vanquished all hope of containment. Whoops. Moreover, it's preventing accurate estimates of key parameters such as reproduction rate, size of infected populations, and the number of benign infections. The result is a chaos of numbers. Um, so I appreciate this is the place that he starts because this is exactly where we're at in the United States. And I think in Canada too, but Dean, you can correct me if I'm wrong. I have no idea what's going on in Canada. I never do. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, this is where we're at. It's hard to even kind of get a picture of like what is exactly happening with this pandemic because we have no means by which we can measure it because we don't have test kits because we don't have a <laughs> medical infrastructure capable of making them because of neoliberalism <laughs> and because of capitalism. Right. And it's all terribly horrific. And the only thing I can do is kind of laugh about it because it's so bad. Yeah, that's right. Um, and it's worth pointing out too, that the other kind of side of this is Mike Davis. One thing that really sets him apart as a, a socialist historian is he's really a person who was formed by really the height of socialist struggles in the seventies and um, going into the eighties. The and as a result, he has this real um, internationalist kind of flair, I guess, or, or commitment, I guess, not flair. It's not like <laughs> it's not just a cool pin that he wears. Uh, he has an international <laughs> internationalist commitment, solidarity commitment. And uh, that really works itself out this way, too, because um, what Davis really drives home is oftentimes people in the, the so-called first world don't care about what's happening in terms of epidemics or pandemics around the world. Uh, there have been lots of pandemics, even in the last few years uh, around the world, but they're poor people diseases, right? They affect poor countries. They affect poor, poor people in poor countries. And now that it's here, it's suddenly a big deal. And what Davis really drives home is uh, not only did it finally get here and now it's on people's radar, but even now that it's here, uh, the ruling elites are still uh, refusing to kind of make the changes they need to make. Um, and I think that's helpful because it's important to, first of all, kind of sidestep the sort of like first world chauvinism that sort of says this isn't really a problem until it gets here. Mm -hmm. um, and the second is also to say, uh, even when it does get here, you know, we, we can't deal with it because of capitalism. So th the point is, it should draw you into a more internationalist solidarity, which I guess we'll talk about later. But anyway, just wanted to bring that up and flag it up front. Yeah, it's a good a good flag. A big red one. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's right. Well, speaking of a big red flag, um, say what you will about China. 
but uh, Davis says a few things. Um, so, you know, as people probably know, the People's Republic of China has um, had the worst of the virus and has also instituted some pretty heavy measures to try to contain it. And uh, it's been those measures have been celebrated by everybody from the World Health Organization to, um, you know, even New York Times journalists and other kinds of folks. So it's not just socialists who are saying this is a, a pretty impressive feat. Um, again, say we will about China. Uh, we said in the Patreon episode uh, that phrase a lot. <laughs> and we said there, too, that we're not like diehard uh, China supporters or China dissidents or whatever. I don't know. It's a complicated place like many others. Um, but here's what Mike Davis says about it, which I think is probably a, a helpful way in. He says, a year from now, we may look back in admiration at China's success in containing the pandemic, but in horror at the USA's failure. I'm making the heroic assumption that China's declaration of rapidly declining transmission is more or less accurate. The inability of our institutions to keep Pandora's box closed, how, of course, is hardly a surprise. Since 2000, we've repeatedly seen breakdowns in frontline healthcare. And I think what's important here is uh, Davis is really saying, uh, again, not not totally endorsing whatever, China in general, but he's saying uh, we might in a year look back on these two uh, experiences and say, uh, wow, like China figured it out. Um, they have a, a, you know, a different kind of value structure when it comes to making decisions about their society and, and how to deal with problems. Uh, whereas the U.S., uh, we might look back on with horror precisely because uh, for the last 20 years, we've been slowly eroding our own ability to deal with these kinds of crises, um, which is really putting it pretty starkly. But that's where we're at. Yeah, totally. Um, it's probably worth noting, too, that, um, you know, uh, some of the countries have kind of figured out some stuff too. Like Cuba has been working on uh, like a vaccine and they've been taking sort of solidarity trips as well um, in junction mm -hmm. with China too. So uh, the socialists all kind of know what's up. <laughs> they at least yeah, have... and Vietnam has been doing a, a pretty amazing yeah. job as well. And uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I mean, it's, uh, it's good to kind of draw those examples out because they really do show you like what happens if you do have a different sort of like, orientation of political values in society right if you're primarily interested right. in people and not uh you know big corporations <laughs> you'll do things a lot differently <laughs> and they are so there you go um okay uh here's the uh the next kind of bit is is um basically what every i don't know reporter has been kind of reporting on for the last uh, two weeks or so um but mike davis says it in a particularly good way uh, so he says the outbreak has instantly exposed the stark class divide in healthcare. Those with good health plans who can work uh, or teach from home are comfortably isolated, provided they follow prudent safeguards. Public employees and other groups of unionized workers with decent coverage will have to make difficult choices between income and protection. Meanwhile, millions of low-wage service workers, farm workers, uncovered contingent workers. The unemployed and the homeless will be thrown to the wolves. Uh, even if Washington ultimately resolves the testing fiasco and provides adequate numbers of kits, the uninsured will still have to pay doctors or hospitals for administering the tests. Overall, family medical bills will soar at the same time that millions of workers are losing their jobs and their employer-provided insurance. Could there possibly be a stronger, more urgent case in favor of Medicare for all? Okay. So this is good because he's exactly right. Uh, this is, uh, I think, an accurate picture of what is, you know, our current situation. People with good health plans who, you know, do more or less, you know, 
cognitive labor, computer labor, whatever you want to call it. I don't know. There's a lot of different sort of Marxisty terms for that sort of thing. But just just the same, like people who can work from home get the benefit of doing that and they're a lot safer because of it. Um, people in unions might have a little bit less, uh, you know, like sort of middle class uh, public employees, those types of folks, um, factory workers and so on. They might have to make some harder choices, but still, at least they have a union to fight for them, I guess. But uh, at the very bottom, low-wage service workers, farm workers, contingent workers, uh, gig economy folks, the homeless, etc., people without jobs at all, they are thrown to the wolves, and it sucks ass how real that is. Um, I, yeah, in my day-to-day life, I work with a lot of folks who are in that category, and um, uh, I've been seeing it firsthand, and he is not wrong or over-exaggerating. People who work in the service industry are, um, you know, they're going to face the worst of it first. And um, whether or not anyone can think of or pass or, um, you know, get energy behind uh, any type of political action that will help them it remains to be seen. It hasn't happened yet and it probably won't. Um, but there we go. That's the that's the state of things for sure. Yeah, I mean, we should talk a little bit more about some of the responses that people have been floating, uh, politicians, that is. Um, I mean, even here in Canada, it's uh, bizarre. It's through the way of universal health care, and that's great. Um, but what we don't have is universal paid sick leave or mm. uh, any kind of jobs guarantee or income guarantee and that sort of thing. I mean, just in my own situation, uh, my partner and I both, our, our income is a uh, contingent on being able to work. Um, I'm able to do that a bit more because of uh, writing and that sort of thing. Uh, But my partner's job is kind of like taking it day by day, trying to figure out whether or not there will be hours for her to fill. Um, And when there finally aren't, then there just won't be. (laughs) And there's no help on the way as far as we know. And it's so frustrating because like, Uh, People like Justin Trudeau will tease that they have uh, these financial um, stimulus packages coming out, but there's no comforting information about, you know, well, what do they contain? Who are they going to really target? Um, And all you really get are these kind of vague platitudes about like, this will be good for the economy, etc., which probably means it won't great for us um you know because we don't we're not very (laughs) useful to the economy in that respect so yeah uh we should talk a little bit about some of the half measures that have been proposed um so the democrats have uh proposed a bunch of things just as we speak i'm sure this is all gonna change quite a lot by the time this episode really comes out on friday but um at least for now the democrats have proposed uh, a number of like kind of interim measures, I guess. So uh, all of them seem kind of unclear to me. For instance, uh, Chuck Schumer had tweeted out just a few things about what we're proposing. So the first is, he says, if you're a working parent and you suddenly have to worry about finding a safe place for your kids to stay during the day, we would provide emergency funding to safely ramp up child care services for heavily impacted parts of the country. So that's the first proposal. Um, I'll read two more and then we'll just talk about them. The second is, if you're disabled or chronically ill, we would provide health care and support services in homes and communities, nutrition assistance, access to medications, caregiver support, and a large increase in Medicaid funding. And lastly, if you're a small business owner suddenly facing cash flow problems, we would allow you to apply for low interest loans and other forms of financial assistance that can offer relief quickly. So these are the three big things that Chuck Schumer is extremely proud of. <laughs> All quite embarrassing. Uh, I'll let you talk about the first one, Matt, because um, I tweeted something about it and I think you had a helpful take on it, uh, but kind of drawing out the nuance of why this is not enough. Yeah, totally. So Chuck Schumer says, you know, if you're a working parent 
and uh, and your kid isn't in school because all the schools are closed or almost all of them are, um, except for a handful of places, um, you know, that we're going to provide a, a safe place for your kids to say during the day while you're at work. Um, and basically what that means is they're going to give you money so that you can pay for childcare. OK, that is I mean, it sounds really nice in a tweet for sure, but like it doesn't actually make any sense because <laughs> first of all, like find safe childcare like good luck like what does that even mean in this situation like what is safe childcare? uh you know can you guarantee that all of the kids that are in the class aren't carriers of of COVID-19 you know um right. it's it's bizarre uh, you know to say the least so it's not like that is going to help you <laughs> if you're a like low-wage worker yeah. um yeah I, I don't know I, I don't see that like I mean like they, they do have to figure out childcare. That's not wrong because like a bunch of low wage workers, you know, people who work at McDonald's and fast food restaurants and grocery stores and stuff like they still have to go to work like that. You know, McDonald's isn't closing. They're just kind of reducing service levels. But like, you know, what are they going to do with their children during that time? That's a really good question to ask. But like Chuck Schumer, this ain't it, chief. Yeah. Well, and one thing that you were saying earlier, Matt, before we started recording that I thought was such a good point is that, so first of all, all these low-wage workers are people who are on the front lines of this crisis, right? Yeah. Like groceries are, are supposed to be an essential service. Um, so you get it, uh, whatever. Um, but like McDonald's staying open through this is so bizarre because it's like people literally risking their lives so that other people can have, I don't know, like a Big Mac and fries, right. which is completely like a morally reprehensible society. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's it is completely silly. I don't I don't know. You know, it it's completely silly. And on the other hand, like you can't just like saying, well, then McDonald's just closed down, too, is also really difficult, too, because like, what are you going to what are those low wage workers going to do? Right. They rely yeah, on their McDonald's right. check. But like it's so much more complicated than that, too, because it's not the case that if McDonald's will stay open, but like, you know, most of the workers will end up getting, you know, less than what they were getting weeks ago. Right. So. It, it, these low wage workers that work at McDonald's or f other fast food restaurants, right? Like they're in the worst of it because they don't have childcare. Their hours are getting cut. No one's going to pay them for, um, you know, the, the hours that they're losing. Um, no one's gonna, <laughs> no one's going to pay, like they don't get paid sick time, all of this stuff. I mean, like the people who are most, um, most at, like most in threat right the people who are right in the line of fire for this whole thing are people who are working yeah like service industry jobs and holy shit if you want to show anyone solidarity right now it's those folks um figure it out i don't mm -hmm. know what that looks like necessarily but like those are the folks that need help for sure yeah and i think also one thing that really bothered me especially just about this tweet this is kind of a subtle point but very important is uh the, the logic here really shows what I think is the, the total poisoning of the democratic brain by capitalism, because the, the logic is if you're a working parent and you have to find a place for your kids to go while you're at work, then we'll give you money. And the presumption is if you're a working parent, then we want you to keep going to work. Like yeah. you, uh, if you contribute to capitalism, then you deserve to be helped by the government. Uh, if you're not a working parent and like you need childcare for some reason, and there are many reasons one might need childcare, even if you're not going to work, yeah. especially during a, a massive health crisis, then, you know, good luck. That's basically the, the, the thing here. And I think the idea that like your, your worth is tied to whether or not you're contributing to capitalism is again, just a signal of an incredibly sick kind of society. Yeah, totally. 
Well, I mean, that's a pretty good segue to the other tweet that Chuck Schumer sent out. The uh, if you're a small business owner suddenly facing cash flow problems, we will allow you to apply for low interest loans, right? Like this is this is the Democrats. I mean, you know, the Republicans probably wouldn't disagree to this either, right? But they're trying to, <laughs> they're tr- I mean, they're trying to make money in this situation. They're going to give low interest loans right. to people that they will inevitably, you know, reap interest from. Like that is that that is a roadmap to for hell like that's where you're gonna go yeah. <laughs> like you're trying to make money off people in a pandemic situation you're going all the way down to the bottom my dude i don't even really believe in hell, yeah man that's fucking bad <laughs> yeah uh it's also one of those things where like people who complain about debt conservatives who complain about debt are always going on about how oh if you didn't want that interest then you shouldn't have taken it out like it's your personal responsibility uh but the fact is like it's also the responsibility of a person lending people money to like choose whether or not this is a good idea and also a society to decide whether or not it's a good idea. Right. And like, I mean, let's just like, <laughs> if anything else, we should be organizing all the small business owners to just collectively not pay those loans afterwards. Like yeah. <laughs> this is a, a stupid gamble that the government is making and they should lose on it because it is, it is an evil thing to do. Petite bourgeoisie, don't pay them back. Debt strike, petite bourgeoisie. That's right. That's right. Yeah, the uh, the National Liber- Liberation Front. Uh, you have to ally with the bourgeoisie for a minute. Yeah, that's, um, <laughs> that's a good mouse principle. Uh, yeah. Uh, the other tweet in here too is worth talking about. So, all right, if you're disabled or chronically ill, we'd provide healthcare and support services in homes and communities, nutrition assistance, access to medications, caregiver support, and a large increase in Medicaid funding. Uh, so, okay, these are good things. We should have that. Um, but what's insane about it is it's basically suggesting that uh, in a crisis, this is something that we can do and will do. But when things go back to normal, <laughs> we're going to roll back mm-hmm. healthcare and support services and homes and communities. We'll roll back nutrition assistance. We'll, you know, make it harder to get medications, caregiver support. We'll we'll roll back Medicaid for sure. Like, it's bizarre to assume that it's just a crisis that demands these kind of basic moral intuitions. I mean, it goes back to what Joe Biden was saying in the debate stage that, yeah, uh, yeah in the middle of a crisis, Medicare for all. And when we get out of it, I don't know, I guess like private insurance companies can just have free reign again to keep making money. Like it makes absolutely no sense, except that all these people are representatives of private interests. They're not representatives of public interests or people. And uh, I mean, it is truly like people tell Telling on themselves that's the kind of situation that we're in right well i mean it's like so many people were saying on twitter too that like these are people who think that you know if this were not a pandemic this would be society working correctly right and that right. is a weird place to be <laughs> a weird headspace that is completely yeah. disconnected from actual people yeah exactly well this leads into how uh, davis closes off his own article um so in this article he did at haymarket he closes saying but universal coverage is only a first step It's disappointing to say the least that in the primary debates, neither Sanders or Warren has highlighted Big Pharma's abdication of the research and development of new antibiotics and antivirals. Of the 18 largest pharmaceutical companies, 15 have totally abandoned the field. Heart medicines, addictive tranquilizers, and treatments for male impotence are profit leaders, not the defenses against hospital infections, emergent diseases, and traditional tropical killers. A universal vaccine for influenza, that is to say, a vaccine that targets the immutable parts of the virus's surface proteins, has been a possibility for decades, but never a profitable priority. The current pandemic expands the argument. Capitalist globalization now appears to be biologically unsustainable in the absence of a truly international public health infrastructure. But such an infrastructure will never exist until people's movements break the power of big pharma and for-profit healthcare. 
Hmm. Uh, and that is the socialist lesson, I guess, of COVID-19, at least according to Mike Davis. And I think it's a good one. Yeah, it is. I mean, it, it just completely lays bare exactly what capitalist logics do, right? Like um, it, it, it prioritizes a bunch of stupid medicines that are going to like help you get a boner rather than uh, actually save your life. If you, um, you know, <laughs> contract some kind of terrible flu and it is the dumbest way to think, but when all you care about is profits, uh, that's exactly what you do. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, that's all very good socialist stuff. Uh, the reason the socialist bit is important, I think, is, again, not to say I told you so or, like, you could have seen this coming if you were a socialist. Like, that's not the point here. Uh, but rather to say that socialism does actually offer you tools that help to make sense of what's going on. And at least for me, I find that somewhat comforting. But it's also useful to know that, you know, if and when the stuff all kind of subsides, uh, we'll have to find a way to take advantage of that as an opportunity to say, like, remember when that happened and these people weren't there for you. Right. Uh, like these are organizing opportunities, even as much as their uh, awful crises that we have to endure. So in addition to the socialist thing, though, we are a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. So we'll maybe pay some attention to the first part of that conjunction, <laughs> the Christianity part. Um, there are some Christian people talking about this. Um, I don't know. I haven't found many of them extremely impressive, I have to say, so far, unfortunately. Um, which, but, which sucks you know, because whatever. it's a religion that's founded on a guy who just healed people. Yeah. Pretty wild, huh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's bad. It's bad, folks. Do better. Um, we've all got to do better. We, I mean, we're not writing them either. I guess we should go out of our way. <laughs> but, but we don't get paid as much as other people. So, look, we're not professionals. <laughs> um, nevertheless, I did see uh, one Christian response, uh, and we had to go all the way to Brazil to get it, a good one, uh, from the one and only Leonardo Boff, one of the founders of Liberation Theology, um, Boff has done a lot of work on eco-theology and some pretty radical stuff, too. Uh, people have their problems with it, but um, I think he's great. Uh, he says this in a new blog post on coronavirus, and I think this is a really good way of at least getting some kind of big themes on the table and driving home the gravity in a way that works with a sort of Christian imagination, let's say. So let me just read another kind of big quote, and um, then we can talk a little bit about it. So. Boff says, not without reason did James Lovelock, he was a like science writer, the formulator of the theory of the earth as a self-regulating living superorganism, or Gaia, uh, not without reason did he write a book entitled Gaia's Revenge. I estimate that current diseases such as dengue, Zika virus, SARS, Ebola, measles, he names a bunch of them, uh, the current coronavirus, and widespread degradation in human relations that are marked by profound inequality and social justice and the lack of minimal solidarity they are a reaction, even a retaliation by Gaia for the offenses we inflict on her continuously. I would not say, like Lovelock, that it is Gaia's revenge, since she, as the great mother that she is, does not take revenge, but rather gives us serious signs that she is sick, like typhoons, melting of polar ice caps, droughts and floods, etc. And she gives us those signs to the limit, because we did not learn the lesson and uh, then those signs, she retaliates uh, like in these mentioned diseases. Sorry, the translations are a little rough, so you have to uh, work around them. But um, the point here is I think Boff is trying to get us to see these not as like a divine judgment in the sense that uh, we all deserve it as like sinners 
in a kind of like, you know, some people don't have sex before marriage and they don't get coronavirus and the ones that do, <laughs> they get it. Not like that. <laughs> but rather to say this is a, a sign that is a consequence of how we've organized our society. And I think this is putting a kind of theological uh, language to that same point that Mike Davis is making, that uh, we have put this destiny on influenza uh, and we are being judged in a certain sense as as sort of perpetrators of a collective sin. Uh, and even more than that, uh, these are signs that the earth is sick and needs to be attended to. Mm. And I think that's just a, a good way of getting into it as people who are maybe informed by a kind of theological imagination. Yeah, I think it's good. I mean, it's um, it's good in the sense that it is a good way to put it, but overall, a very bad thing. <laughs> Right. Um, Boff also, he goes on to talk a little bit more about this. Uh, he, he says, of course, you know, government should be fighting the virus. Like, it's not like we should just sort of accept this. That's not what he's trying to say. <laughs> like, like uh, it's good that we have this punishment or whatever. Um, you know, he recognizes it's causing real human tragedy and that, that we should do something about it. Um, but he also says this. This is how, sort of how he almost closes it. He says, Earth will not be content with these little counterparts. It begs a different attitude towards uh, the earth. Respect for its rhythms and limits, care for its sustainability and feeling, more than sons and daughters of the earth. Just as we take care of ourselves, we must take care of it. Earth does not need us, we need it. She may no longer want us on her face, and instead keep turning through outer space without us, because we are ecocides and geocides. Uh, which that's a pretty heavy thing to say. It reminds me of another blog post Spoff had made a long time ago uh, where he basically makes the same point that um, the earth doesn't need us and one day it will be rid of capitalism some way or another. Mm. It will judge us. The question is whether or not uh, we will be there um, afterwards. And that's the sort of guarantee of justice for Boff in the, this ecological man uh, imaginary that, you know, at some point, the scales are going to get equalized, and uh, it'd be great if that we were there, but there's no guarantee that we would be. Justice will still be served if humans aren't present mm -hmm. to, to see it. And I think that's a very important theological message that uh, dovetails with that socialist stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think that's such a powerful way to think about it, though, because, I mean, I've been so focused on, but like, in, in my daily life, I've just been so focused on, like, the workers who are going to suffer the most from it. But I think uh, putting it in that way does kind of help you zoom out and see the bigger picture, but also how these are two interconnected struggles, right? Like you can't have, I mean, you know, struggling for um, struggling on the behalf of workers and helping organize and, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, you can't, you do that. And you're also kind of like trying to right the wrong, uh, the big wrong of, uh, of capitalism and how it's organized the, entire planet and how it's kind of coming back to get us. But um, I guess what I'm trying to say is that these are two interconnected struggles, um, even though they're of different scales. And that's a helpful, mm -hmm. uh, a helpful point. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, okay. So we have maybe these two big framing devices for thinking about uh, the problem of coronavirus, socialist wise, Christian wise, whatever. Um, but let's maybe turn and just talk a little bit more about some solidarity stuff and what that looks like in the face of this. Um, so I am going to turn to you again, Matt, yeah. and ask you to lead us through because of the work that you're doing right now. Yeah, totally. So, I mean, I coronavirus is bad, but it has opened up a small space where all of a sudden every single reporter on the planet cares about the workers in the United States. They care about service industry workers working at fast food. 
And uh, I mean, it's terrible. That's the like, that's what has to happen before people actually care about the people that are making their burritos or whatever. But like, I don't know, that's what it took in this case. Um, You know, no one. uh, It's very hard to get, um, you know, a journalist or or just like bigger media organizations to care about uh, fast food workers because, um, you know, people they have all kinds of different sort of like um stereotypes surrounding them like that they're teenagers or or that they are you know people that don't work very hard which is very much opposite of what's true so anyways in light of all in in all this coronavirus stuff um people all of a sudden care about uh, the people that are making their food probably kind of selfishly but you know i'll take what i can get i guess um so yeah i mean you can't um you can't spit without hitting an article about (laughs) fast food workers in the united states right now they're (laughs) everywhere um yeah so anyways I, I i grabbed one that i was reading earlier today uh that was written by hamilton nolan who is a pretty all right labor reporter for in these times which is um you know kind of a a pretty left-leaning sort of anarchist bent uh publication i don't know give it a read it's pretty nice um anyways uh nolan or hamilton nolan wrote an article called unions across america are screaming for paid sick leave and healthcare." <laughs> Um, it's a great headline because it tells you exactly what this article is about. Anyways, I picked up this little <laughs> bit in the article that kind of um, parses out exactly like what's at stake and why this moment is important uh, as it explicates sort of the situation that most workers are in. Uh, so I'll just read it. As coronavirus spreads, sowing panic and economic dislocation, unions across the country are using the crisis as an opportunity to call for priorities that were dismissed as left-wing fantasies not long ago just like two weeks ago, and how they seem like common sense. Perhaps the most bluntly effective campaign is now being waged by Chipotle workers in New York City who are trying to organize with SEIU. Um, workers went on strike last week, charging that the company is violating the city's paid sick leave laws by retaliating against employees who take time off. To put a fine point on it, the union quoted Chipotle worker Carlos Hernandez in a press release saying, Several times in my year at Chipotle, I've gotten sick and had diarrhea while at work. Um, He says uh, a little bit later, every time this happened, I went to the on-duty manager and let them know I was sick and I had diarrhea and I asked to go home. But unfortunately, every time I did this, the manager merely told me to switch from the grill where I normally work to washing dishes or working the cash register. So, like, I I guess to me, what's important here is that, like, this is a moment where, again, I think probably for a lot of selfish reasons, right? Because people in the United States love to eat fast food. And like now, now all of a sudden that there's like a health crisis, they care about who's making it. So, you know, it's a moment to seize upon, I suppose, but like um, people in, in service industries and fast food, they don't get paid sick time. Um, many of them choose to come to work sick because if, you know, they don't, uh, they don't get a paycheck. And uh, this is like the, the moment, like a, a fulcrum in history where all of a sudden all these unions are like, give everyone paid sick leave now because like now you see how important it is, right? So anyways, I think this is a good left response and unions are doing the right thing in so far as they are demanding paid sick leave for all people. Um, and uh, hope, hopefully this like sticks in people's brains <laughs> as like an important lesson <laughs> that they learn. Um, but um yeah, I don't know. I hope that they learn they learn their lesson. Give everyone paid sick leave so this doesn't keep happening so that like, you know, you don't have to be afraid to go to Chipotle because um someone's sick or whatever. Uh so it's an important uh an important part of the story, I think. Yeah, definitely. And uh, yeah, I mean, you're totally right to again stress that 
coronavirus is bad, but it raises these kinds of uh, openings or opportunities to seize on for building class consciousness and hopefully building solidarity too. Um, it just makes me think, especially about, you know, what's the kind of Christian vocation in a moment like this? Mm. Um, on the one hand, it's definitely to understand what's going on, but it's also to try to find who's marginalized and how can you really become an, an agent that works with people who are oppressed or marginalized for collective liberation, right? And, you know, in, in my own daily life, yeah, I, I work with political organizations that I won't necessarily mention all the time, but uh, there's all kinds of things that they're doing that are trying to connect workers in precarious moments, also trying to find, you know, who's not able to, like, go out of their apartment and, like, risk their health at a grocery store or something, and how could you shop on behalf of them and, and come back to them. Like these very kind of small acts of hospitality actually become more and more politically radical. And if you can show up for people in a moment like that, uh, that's also the the kind of credibility you have to build um, if you want people to show up for you when things go back to normal and you need to keep on building and agitating and advocating, which isn't to say that you should see all these kind of acts of hospitality as a, you know, strategic or something, but rather to say there's a, a an important kind of coming together of Christian vocation and uh, the desire to build a, a society and the strategic kind of things you have to do to build that society. Uh, that all comes together in a moment like this or in a crisis like this. And I guess like what I hope to see more of going forward, especially from lefty Christians, is trying to think these things together. You know, what are Christians supposed to be doing? Like, uh, maybe you can't leave your own apartment. That's fine. Like, a lot of people can't. Uh, how can you still show solidarity with people who, like, can't pay their bills or um, who are lonely or who, you know, need to feel like they're connected to other people who are uh, involved in a struggle, like, in the midst of anxiety and panic? I guess for me, it always comes down to two things, which is, like, uh the, the kind of strange feeling of, of comfort I do get from my Christian faith, as frustrating as it often is, uh, and the other is organizing. Like, those are the two kind of sources of peace in the midst of, you know, any kind of anxious situation. And it seems to me like the coronavirus is a important moment to sort of find out how those things uh, show up or could show up in this kind of situation. Yeah, that's a really, um, a really good point. Um, before we kind of move on, let me get, let me, uh, before I put my soapbox away, I guess, let me say like one, <laughs> one more, or maybe two more things really quick about this whole situation. Um, hopefully people don't mind, uh, because it is kind of an important solidarity moment. So like, okay, it might seem like it is a really hopeful, a really hopeless kind of moment, I think for people that work in service industries and people who are sort of outside, um, you know, having healthcare and having paid sick leave, it's totally bad. And, um, yeah, I mean, like we were saying earlier, Chuck Schumer is not going to solve the problem for anybody. Um, and no one probably will, right? It's like, it's just going to suck. It's going to suck and be terrible. Um, and uh, man, it's a really complicated situation for exactly why it sucks. There's a lot of legal things going on. And um, man, we could do a whole thing about <laughs> like labor law and let's not because it's complicated. But basically, it's this, right? So, um, uh, OK, so there are like there are corporate organizations that, um, you know, own the intellectual property of McDonald's or Chipotle or whatever. It doesn't matter. Whatever it is. Who cares? Right. And um, those corporate like organizations will set one set of standards for their quote corporate stores and one set of standards for their franchise stores. This is a labor law um, 
that is basically called joint employer. You can look it up if you want, I suppose. But anyways, um, it, it, it's a it's organizing stores in terms of corporate and franchise lets the corporate office off the hook for like caring about workers at the franchise level. So like if you go to a McDonald's or a Chipotle or whatever restaurant you go to and it is owned by a franchisee, not the corporate store, chances are the workers there are getting uh, treated substantially worse than they would if they worked at a corporate store. Um, and the thing that really sucks is that like the the person that makes like the big decisions and rules for that particular store is the franchise owner. So basically, if you want to show a lot of solidarity for people who work in the service industry, harass those people. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. For like real. go and talk to managers. Um, I mean, like talk to managers is fine. Um, that's probably only get you so far. But find out who owns the stores in your area and like, I don't know, find ways to yell at them, write op eds against them um you know say things to them on social media whatever you can do i mean basically if you just i don't know man that's probably a bad idea to say harass people like that but like i'm just saying like those are the people that make those decisions um and uh they should be held accountable for them yeah no absolutely yeah and i mean <laughs> that's also a christian thing to do right uh to um speak up for other people who can't because they might lose their job um if you, there's nothing at stake for you then why wouldn't you put your own safety on the line for that i'm going to be thinking about that i mean i live in canada so i have to sort out what's going on there but my guess is um it's probably not great here either so uh that's a good thing to be thinking on anyway looking for those kind of opportunities yeah <laughs> um well let's kind of uh move to close close this out uh returning to mike davis um i think that again what's so helpful about this book is okay first of all there's a ton of stuff in here about the flu, and you can learn a lot about the flu if that's what you want to know about. <laughs> you can learn about how the flu works, how it travels. Uh, you can learn about, I don't know, the like political economy of um, Indochina and Southeast Asia and whatever. That That's all very fun um, and interesting. I mean, it's not fun. It's tragic, but it's all fascinating. Um, but I think what is especially useful about this is just the the paradigm that it gets you thinking in which is uh, a socialist one and the way that davis ends this book i think is useful so he says as with hiv aids and the easily preventable infant diarrheal diseases avian influenza is a fundamental test of human solidarity access to lifeline medicines including vaccines antibiotics and antivirals should be a human right universally available at no cost if markets can't provide incentives to cheaply produce such drugs, then governments and nonprofits should take responsibility for their manufacture and distribution. The survival of the poor must at all times be accounted a higher priority than the profits of big pharma. And to that, we could add the profits of McDonald's franchi franchisee owners and, you know, the profits of uh, private grocery store owners, uh, all kinds of industries that will benefit in a crisis like mm -hmm. this. He says, likewise, the creation of a truly global public health infrastructure has become a project of literally life and death urgency for the rich countries as well as the poor. And again, I think that's really the key here that Davis tells us to consider that um, this is a moment for local solidarity. It's a moment for global solidarity. Uh, it's a moment to ask questions of, you know, what is going on in a place like Cuba with coronavirus? Uh, what's going on in, in Venezuela? Uh, what's going on with the the most marginalized people in under right wing 
governments like in Brazil or in the Philippines? Like, uh, how does coronavirus uh, reveal the the intensification of of inequality? Um, and I think that's important because when the coronavirus crisis subsides, uh, we'll all have to come out of it with certain lessons that we learn. And you know, some people will come out of it learning I don't know that they really like a novelist or something, and that's fine. Like, you know do what you got to do, read a good novel. Uh, but also along with that, come out knowing that uh, in order to keep yourself safe, to keep your community safe, you also have to figure out how to keep like poor people in Vietnam safe. And I think that is like a very profound lesson that you can get from a global pandemic and one that is important for socialists and Christians alike. Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash the Magnificast. We got a Redbubble store. You can buy all our cool stickers and our t-shirts, and that's great. You should do it. Um, we got a Facebook group. We got a Twitter. Um, follow us in those places. It's not hard to find us. Just type in the Magnificast. Um, it's it's easy to do. Our intro music is from Amaria Armstrong, and the outro music is from The Illogical Spoon. All right. See you next week. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up and you stay up late in Jackson. You keep your hoods up where you keep your hoods up and you stay up late.